Uh, I'm going to be looking at Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22 this morning. Again, if you've been with us, we're working our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. If you were here the first week, I challenged you to read the whole thing in one sitting. If you've not done that yet, I would challenge you to do that. Uh, being a letter and being the Apostle Paul, every verse is connected to not only the verse that precedes it, but to the verse after it. And the section of Scripture we're going to look at today, if you've grown up in the church at all, you've probably at some point spent some time in the passage last week, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Uh, that gets a lot of airtime. But this passage sometimes does not, and I would argue it's really important, especially given what Paul has just taught uh, in the passage we looked at last week. So I'm going to pray for us, and we'll dive right in. Uh, Father, we love you, and more than that, we are grateful this morning for your love for us, that you loved us first, that the only reason why we can even call you Father and then even declare our love for you is because you have called us sons, and before the foundation of the world, you loved us. Uh, we're reminded again of how this letter to the Ephesian church begins, that in love you predestined us to be adopted as sons. Father, we thank you for our adoption this morning, that we who are once orphans, and not only that, but we chose our orphanhood in rejecting you, God, that you had sent your own son to die in our place that we might be sons. Father, not only were we sons this morning, but you have called us to be the people of God, to be the household of God, to be a new temple, to be the church. So, Lord, I pray that you would give all of us a bigger vision of what it means to be your people, what it means to be transformed, not just in an intellectual way, but from the heart, in a way that makes us into a new living temple in which you dwell. Lord, would you reveal this to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on in, guys. Um, we are, um, you know, as we dive into this, uh, we live in a time and in a place where um, I think faith uh, feels a little bit squishy. What I mean by that is um, living in Dallas, Texas, and are any of you, I mean, just show of hands, are any of you just not from the Bible Belt? A few of you? Wow, that's a, not a ton of people. So a lot of you are from the Bible Belt, you're from Dallas, from Texas, but a few of you who aren't, especially if you've spent any time outside of the Bible Belt, you will realize very quickly that other cities ain't like Dallas, right? In so many ways. But especially when you think about what Christianity is. Um, Christianity, uh, even though we we're seeing faith in our country, begin to unravel in so many different areas. And you could argue we're starting to see a little bit of that happening even here in Dallas. Uh, the idea of Christianity still very much is a, a cultural phenomenon here. And that is nothing new, okay? That is absolutely nothing new. Uh, and if you ever study church history or history at all, you're going to see this throughout human history, that as faith takes hold in a genuine way, there's a movement of the Spirit in a genuine way in a place that there begins to be um, cultural outliers of people that want to kind of harness that, but that aren't really genuinely Christians. In other words, there, there's a way that Christian belief, Christianity, can become cultural. And you can, you can see this throughout human history. 
uh, one of the most recent times where that was true actually was in the first great awakening, where there was a genuine uh, movement of the Spirit of God uh, transforming person after person after person. It was a genuine revival, not one that was invented, not one that was made up. It was the result of prayer and preaching and the, the Holy Spirit moving and converting people to himself. But while that was happening, there was also a cultural phenomenon going on as well. We're kind of mixed in within genuine converts or cultural Christians. And sometimes that wasn't even for reasons that were um, wrong or manipulative or to try to, you know, just be part of the in crowd. Sometimes it's possible that people can interact with the church and grow up in the church and know lots of churchy things and know lots of doctrine here without the gospel ever transforming the heart. It's possible. There's a difference between knowing lots of facts about God, lots of facts about Jesus, and not really knowing him at a deep, intimate level in your heart. How do you even know the difference? How would you begin to even try to discern the difference? Well, one of the great preachers of the uh, Great Awakening was a man named Jonathan Edwards. And he wrote many, many things, but one of the things that I have found exceedingly helpful is a little treatise called The Distinguishing Marks. What are the distinguishing marks of genuine conversion? And he outlines all of these different ways that you could look at somebody or look at your own heart and see a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. I think that this is a little bit of what the Apostle Paul was doing in this latter section of chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians. If you were with us last week, Brett Rail taught on how um, really just the gospel itself, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive in Jesus Christ. It's one of the great passages of the New Testament that outlines the gospel so clearly, so concisely. And so if you have not spent time in that passage before today, if you missed last week, I really want you to, uh, because there is not a greater passage for you to really soak in. But don't just stop there, because Paul doesn't stop there. And this morning, as we look at verses 11 through 22, he's going to try to help give us a new vision of what the gospel actually does in our hearts. How as people, to be genuinely um, converted is not just an intellectual enterprise. You know what I mean by that? It's not just, hey, I, I want to make sure that you are knowing the right things up here that you can repeat all of the correct things back to me. But that what God is doing is he, as he is drawing people to himself and he has given his son Jesus to die on the cross for our salvation, he is building a people. He's building up a church. He is building up no less than the very dwelling place of himself. What he is doing, he is building a new temple, a temple that's not built with uh, bricks and stone, but a temple that is being built with the human heart. 
And he is building us together as God's people to now be his dwelling place. In the same way that he dwelled in the temple in the Old Testament, what we're going to see this morning is he dwells in you and me. What does it mean to be converted? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have faith? Well, it's not just something that you believe up here, but it's something that is so powerfully transforming in your heart that now your heart has become the residence of God himself. That's what I want to look at this morning of how God is forming a people. I want to look at this in three ways. The first is this, that as a people who've been changed by Jesus Christ, who have received the death and resurrection of Jesus, we now have a past. We are a people with a past. And I want you to look at this, uh, verse 11. This is what Paul says. He says, therefore, remember. Now, as we study Ephesians or any of uh, Paul's letters, you always want to pay attention to the transition points. And we looked at this last week, right? So if you look at verse 4, and it's not on your sheet, but if you have your Bible out, verse 4, right? Chapter 2, ver- first three verses are all about our sin. And then the very first word of verse 4 is but. It's a great word. <laughs> it's a great word because it marks a transition. Paul's outlining just how sinful and depraved we are, but... God being rich in mercy. So now we have another transition, verse 11. It's a therefore. In other words, for, from um, Ephesians 1, verse 1, all the way into Ephesians 2, verse 11, all of that should be taken together. All of it. Some of you are like, man, that's a lot of stuff to read. I know. Sometimes you have to read a lot of stuff. But this is why it's so important for you to read it all at once. Because Paul's saying, hey, all of this stuff, everything I talked about in chapter 1, everything I talked about in the first 10 verses of chapter 2, all of that taken together, therefore. And then the second word, remember. It's the first command in the book of Ephesians. Up until this point, you've been given, here's all of what God has done. It's the first time that Paul is saying, now here's what you should do. In the uh, book of Ephesians, many of Paul's letters, but especially the book of Ephesians, I'm going to give you, I debated whether or not to say this to you guys, but this is a good thing for you guys to know. It's a very seminary kind of phrase, okay? This is a dorky, if you want to impress your friends about dorky Bible knowledge, which, by the way, we're trying to get away from this morning, right? Not just what you know, but in your heart. This will not save you, I'll say that. How about that, okay? The indicative precedes the imperative. The indicative precedes the imperative. Okay, why is that nerdy phrase so important? Well, in Paul's letters, what you're going to see is the indicative always comes before the imperative. In other words, the indicative is what God has done. Not what you do, what God has done. And that always comes before the imperative. Imperative is a command. What you do. In other words, Paul through, uh, you know, chapter 1, verse 1, through 2, verse 11, all indicative. Here's all the things God has done. All of that comes before, here's what you should do. How often, as believers, as followers of Jesus, if you've grown up in the church, do we switch those? Do we think that the Christian life is the imperative before the indicative? The Christian life is, here's what I have to do in order to get God to respond. What you see in the gospel, what you see in Paul, what you see in the New Testament, what you see in the Bible, it's it's the exact opposite. God acts we respond. But notice even what Paul is calling us to respond this morning is not even an action. It's to remember. To remember. What is he asking us to remember? Remember who you were. Remember who you were. Who were you? If you were part of the Ephesian church, who were you? 
This is what he says. You were Gentiles in the flesh. You were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, second time he says it, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. So Paul is saying, look, you have to remember who you were. Why is that important? Well, first, you, had a, you have a past. If you were part of the Ephesian church here, you would have been just told this, that you were Gentiles, you were the uncircumcision, meaning you were unholy, unclean, you were defiled, you were separated from Christ. There was a barrier between you and Jesus. There was a wall. You were separated. You could not access him. You had nothing to do with him. You were separated because of your sin, because of your depravity, because of your brokenness, because of your rebellion. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. What's it mean to be an alien, politically speaking, right? You were cut off. You did not belong, right? You did not belong to the commonwealth of Israel. You did not belong to the people of God. You were separate. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. God's promise to be a, a blessing, to be uh, your God and that you would be his people. You were a stranger to that. You were not included. You were a nobody, spiritually speaking. You were as good as he said in the beginning of, verse, uh, of chapter 2. You were as good as dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And if that wasn't enough, Paul just wants to make it clear. You had no hope. No hope, and you were without God in the world. That is who you were. Every single one of you brothers, just like me, just like the Ephesians, you have a past. You have who you were before Jesus Christ. I want you to spend some time this morning imagining what Paul might say to us this morning about who we were. Many of these terms, if not all of these terms, apply to us too. Perhaps in a different way than applied to them. But you had a past. Now, notice Paul is saying you need to remember that you had a past. Why? One of the things that you might hear often, especially in our day and age today, and it's, it's not a new phrase, but don't dwell on the past, right? It's water under the bridge. Let's move on. So why, Paul, are we, are we dwelling in the past? Why do we have to go backwards? Because remember, what is he saying? This is who you were. It's not who you are anymore. This is who you were. In other words, as a Christian, a distinguishing mark is that you've been transformed. You've been changed. That's why one of the great words of the mission statement here at Park City's Presbyterian Church is that we are extending the transforming presence of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It changes people. You should be changed, Paul's saying. This is who you were. It's not who you are anymore. So don't act that way anymore. It's not your identity. In other words, we remember who we were in the past because as we do, we recognize that we have a story of rescue to tell story of transformation, a story of how God has come into our hearts and has completely changed who we are from the inside out. And some of you have very dramatic stories 
Uh, I, I don't know if I've told this story before, but um, is this fair? Is, I think this is fair. So I, I used to be, shocker, not part of the PCA. And um, I was part of a, a movement of church plants called Acts 29. Anyone know what Acts 29 is? So in Acts 29, you know, in the PCA, your kind of pastoral street cred is kind of, you know, what kind of bow ties do you have? Um, you know, how big are the pleats on your khakis? This is fair, this isn't fair. I'm, but I'm, I'm fully PCA now, so I can make fun of my own tribe, right? In Acts 29, it's, man, what, how, how many uh, tats do you have? I mean, do you have a full sleeve or just a half sleeve? In Acts 29, it was, man, just how, how rough, how edgy are you? In Acts 29, it was, how crazy is your conversion story? Right? That's what it was. And it almost became like a competition. And maybe some of you have felt this way about your own story of rescue. Maybe some of you are like, man, I know my wife is this way. She's like, my conversion story's boring. I just came to faith when I was six years old. If that's you this morning and you're a dad, let me ask you something. What do you pray for your kids? Do you pray that they have a crazy messed up conversion story? Like, God, I just want them to just live a life of just rebellion and craziness so that one day they have a lot of street cred. No, you do not. You pray that they would not know a day that they do not know Jesus Christ. That's a fair story this morning. Can I just challenge you to rejoice in that? You have a story of the faithfulness of God in your life that is unbelievable. Now, that's not to, if, if you do have a crazy story, I don't want to diminish that either. But what I want you to see is every one of us has a past, every one of us has a story to tell, and for every one of us, that's a story of powerful transformation. If you are genuinely a believer in Jesus Christ. And do you know what else? This is what's so great, is your story's not over yet. So often we think about telling our, sharing our testimony, sharing a story of rescue, we think about our conversion. Here's the good news, brothers, and, and this is the good news, especially for us who still sin, which is all of us in this room. He's not done with us. You had a past. For all of us, that past was even last week. And whatever sins you committed, whatever thing that is even this morning you are bringing into this room that is kind of weighing you down, that is not who you are anymore. At one point, yes, you were strangers to the covenant of promise. At one point, yes, you had no part, hope and you were without God. But now, Christian, you have been changed. You have been transformed. You had a past, but now God is in your present. Second. Second, we are a people who are natural enemies, enemies of God, enemies of one another. Uh, if you're with us on Sunday, I preached from 1 Samuel about how we were enemies of God. And we see this here actually in Ephesians as well. Uh, this is what he says. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, this is verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is who you were. You were strangers, you were cut off, you were far off, but now you've been brought near. You've been brought near to God. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace that he might reconcile us both to God 
and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We were once enemies. Romans 5.10, for while you were enemies, Christ died for you. Not while you were now friends of God, that's when Jesus decided to die for you, not because you've shown your loyalty and faithfulness to God, Jesus died for you. No, when you were an enemy, when you were directly opposed to him, when you were in rebellion, when you were committing treason against the king and his kingdom, that's when Christ died for you. Paul talks about it this way in Ephesians, that you were far off, but now you've been brought near. And so now Jesus Christ is our peace. He has reconciled us. That's the word Paul uses. What does that word mean? The word reconciliation is an important word in the Bible. And what we see here is what the gospel does, what the cross does, is it reconciles us in two ways. It reconciles us to God, and it reconciles us to one another. So first, how does it reconcile us to God? Remember, you were once far off. There was a wall between you and God. If you think about the temple in the Old Testament, there were a series of walls that all led up into the Holy of Holies, the place where the Spirit of God dwelled. And with each concentric circle of walls, you would have various levels of holiness, okay? So much so that the only person who was allowed through each barrier, all the way to the Holy of Holies, was the high priest once a year. You are not allowed to be in the presence of God. Why? Because you're unholy. Brothers, this is what our sin does to us. This is what our rebellion does to us. It separates us from God. It puts a big word, enmity, between us and God. What does that mean? It means we're enemies. It means we have no business being in his presence. And yet what Paul is saying here is this, what the gospel does is it, it tears that wall down. It removes that barrier. It reconciles you to God through Jesus Christ. So much so that, look, think about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the closeness of the fellowship between the Father and the Son. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus says that we have that kind of fellowship now with God as his sons because of what the cross has done for us. Can, can you imagine, can you fathom that? That there is no hostility anymore between you and God. He, Christ, is our peace. Because he loved you so much, he died for you on the cross so that you would have peace with God. But not just peace with God, that we would have peace with one another. As you think about the temple and these different concentric circles of walls, there wasn't just a wall that separated the unholiness of all humanity from the holiness of God, but there was actually a wall that separated different classes of human beings. And what you had is you had a wall that separated Jew from Gentile, a wall between those who are part of Israel and those who are not. And, and even recently, archaeologists, big, big word for me to say this morning, archaeologists found these words inscribed in the wall. I want you to hear this. It says, any Gentiles found inside these walls have themselves to blame for their death. So if you were a Gentile, and this morning I think almost 99% of us would have been, not part of Israel. Maybe some of you have Jewish heritage. A lot of us do not. That would have been you. 
and you would have come up to this temple mount, you would have come up to this wall, and not only would you feel ostracized, like you could not go in, but you would have had this warning. If you pass this, you have yourself to blame for your death. The penalty of crossing this wall is death. And not only that, but what's difficult for us to fathom is that this wall was not just a physical barrier, but it was a cultural barrier too. Jew and Gentiles had no business being together. They hated each other. This was not just spiritual or religious, but if you study the Bible, and especially you study the ancient Near East, and you study uh, the first century of the church, it was racial too. John Stott puts it this way. I want you to hear this. This is what Stott says. He says, it's difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned between those days between Jews and Gentiles. He said, not that the Old Testament uh, commanded such a divide. The tragedy is that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism, and they became filled with racial pride and hatred and despised the Gentiles as dogs and developed traditions that kept them apart. In other words, they created religion to make division among people. Have we seen that in our history in any time recently? I think we have. What, what Paul is saying is, look, it's not just that you've been reconciled to God, but as believers in Christ, you've been reconciled to one another. And so if there's been any animus, any racial pride, any way that you've divided yourself from other people based on socioeconomic status, based on where you come from, based on your, uh, where you live or your zip code or based on the color of your skin, however you want to try to categorize human beings, the enmity that we have with one another has been torn down. It's been torn down. The wall between Jew and Gentile in the temple has been torn down. The wall of hostility is gone. It's been abolished. You are now one in Christ Jesus. You are one. From the book of Galatians, Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That's why in the book of Revelation, we're told that every tribe, every tongue, every nation will worship together. Every people will worship together as one. It's why you have more in common. You have more in common, get this, with a Palestinian Christian. Arab Christian, there are many, than you do with a non-Christian American. And if that kind of rattles you a little bit this morning, I want you to think about that. Because you are one in Christ Jesus. You are one in Christ Jesus. This wall of enmity has been torn down. If you've heard me teach before, this is one of my favorite descriptions of the church. This comes from a great book called Love in the Hard Places by D.A. Carson. I want you to listen to this for just a second, and we'll, we'll conclude with the last thing. I love this passage uh, from this book. This is what Carson says about the church. He says, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. <laughs> we wish it was. It'd be a lot easier that way, but it's not. He says it's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. No, Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they've been saved by Jesus Christ. 
and owe him a common allegiance. And in light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they've all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says to love one another. Okay, and I want you to listen to this. In light of this, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. The idea that they would know we are Christians by our love is really easy to pull off if we're all just going to be natural friends anyways. <laughs> we just gather with people that we naturally love. It's like, look, they're going to know we're Christians. But when you begin to think that really the power behind that idea, they're going to know we are Christians by the way we love one another, when you realize that really the church is a bunch of people who naturally would have no business being together, who naturally would hate one another. And what D.A. Carson says, natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. What a witness, what a testimony that would be to the world. How do you do any of that? Last thing. Who are we as converted people, changed people, transformed people? We are a people in whom God dwells. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have received the death and resurrection for your salvation, what that means is now God dwells in you. I want you to think about that, brothers, this morning. Not that he dwells around you. He dwells in you. This is what Paul says, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints. You are members of the household of God being built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In other words, what Paul is saying is, look, the church is not an event. It's not a thing we go to. So often on a Sunday morning, where are we going? We're going to church. Paul is saying, look, the church is not this thing that you go to on a Sunday, but it's, it's all the time. It's, it's not a place. It's not a people. It's not a building, but it's like a building. It's a household that's being built up brick upon brick upon brick. And not just any household, it's the household of God. In the Old Testament, the household of God was what? It was the temple. If you've been to the Temple Mount today, what are you going to find? You're going to find a mosque. And on one hand, you can be um, very, very bothered by that. And perhaps we should. But the other way that you should think about that is this. The temple's not there anymore because Jesus promised it would be rebuilt. And what I want to tell you is even though perhaps we might see it physically be rebuilt one day, he's already built a new temple. And it's not a temple that's built with bricks and stones. It's a temple that's been built with human hearts. You, Christian, are the new temple. You are the place that God dwells. He says, we have been being built up into the spiritual household of God, built on a foundation that is the apostles and prophets. What's he talking about? He's talking about this, the word of God. And then he's saying, built on Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone. He is our cornerstone. All the different things that we try to found the church on, even good things, none of them will ever compare to who Jesus is. And so in your mind, as you think about a church, 
are going to church and you want whatever, if this is your church or you go to a different church, or if you're looking for a church and you're going through what are the different categories of things I'm looking for, whether it's a worship style, a particular brand of theology, or how people dress, or what they look like, fill in the blank. None of those things are a cornerstone. All of those things will crush under the weight and the pressure of human sin. The only thing that can be the cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. So much so that the way that he's the cornerstone of the temple, the new temple of you and me, is he dwells in our hearts. That's where we're going to end. Verse 22. In him, in Jesus, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God himself dwells in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. He has taken up residence inside of you. He has pitched his tent to live in you. And he is changing you now from the inside out. Brothers, there's not a greater thing for us to meditate on today that should change everything that we do from the conversation we're about to have at our table to what we do at our jobs for the rest of today, to how we uh, parent and shepherd our families, the way that we are husbands, the way that we date, the way that we are employers or employees, the way that we treat others, to know that you are carrying with you as you leave this place the Holy Spirit who is dwelling in your heart. What a gift. What a promise. What a fulfillment. Let me pray for you and we'll talk uh, at our tables. Father, so much of this is, um, it is, it's big, it's lofty. So Father, I pray that you would help us to find a way to, to draw this in. Um, we know we can't do that on our own, so we pray uh, nothing less than a work of the Holy Spirit this morning to do that. It's one thing for us to think about this with our minds. That's another thing for us to receive this in our souls. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that, that you would do what you promised here, that you would, through your Son, send your Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And may the indwelling Spirit now bind us together as the body of Christ, the household of God. And may it guide our conversations, not only at our tables, but for the rest of the day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.